Good morning. Good morning. Amen. Okay, let there be sound. Um, okay, Romans is frequently considered one of the jewels of the New Testament and the clearest, most detailed unpacking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter 8 is the, I think I heard Pastor Gary say a few weeks ago, the sparkle in that jewel. It's the, it's the highest peak. And in Romans chapter 8, we are coming to one of the highest peaks in the chapter. So we are in the peak of a peak of a peak. We are in high places. And I think by the end of our time this morning, hopefully our jaws will drop at the glory and the grace and the love and the power of God towards us. This morning's message is God's invincible purpose in bringing his children to glory. God's invincible purpose unstoppable, indefatigable purpose in bringing his children to glory. Let's read verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, to understand this passage, we need to go back a little bit and try to set it in its context. Verse 29 starts with a four. But then you go back a little further to 26, and it starts with a likewise. And you go back to 18, it starts with a four. And so this is linked together. There's a flow of thought. Um, so let's just back up to verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And so Paul has just unpacked this amazing teaching, our adoption as sons and heirs of God. And we're so used to this. We're so used to calling God Father that we need to stop and marvel at this. No Old Testament saint called God Father. Israel, corporately, would speak of God as their father. David never refers to God as Father. Um, only through the adoption, only through the new covenant, do we get this privilege of calling him literally daddy, a familial term. And we have his spirit. And if we're sons, and if we have his spirit, then we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And Christ is the heir of everything. This is staggering. But then, Paul moves to the second part of this section, the necessity of suffering as sons in the hope of the glory to come. And we'd like verse 20, we'd like verse 17 to stop right where I stopped, but it doesn't, does it? And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And in this next section, he's gonna talk about the sufferings in this world. The reality is that those who are in Christ, those who are believers in the gospel, are heirs, are sons and daughters, and yet we still live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. And the theme of this section is going to be groaning. Um, For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons. So he's declared that we are adopted, and yet in some real senses, we're awaiting our adoption because the fullness of our adoption comes with the redemption of our bodies. Our spirits are alive in Christ. Our bodies are still dying. There will come a day in the future where our living spirit is united with a resurrected living body, and that will be when we truly become sons and daughters of God in truth and fact. God has declared it to be so. We have the first fruits of this, but we eagerly are awaiting redemption of creation, the redemption of our bodies, and until then we are groaning in a world that is groaning, and we are groaning. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. But God has given us some help. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So creation is groaning under the weight of sin and death and corruption. And our own bodies are groaning. I finally reached the age where you start to have things that hurt and it starts to occur to you, maybe that won't go away. <laughs> you, know, you, know what, you know what I mean? When you're young, you bounce back from everything. But I've got a sore shoulder that every now and, gets, and then gets sore and I'm beginning to come to the realization that that just might be something that goes on for the rest of my life. My body is groaning. This world is groaning. The Spirit of God in us, loving us, interceding for us, is groaning. And so Paul is trying to encourage his readers with this wonderful truth that we are sons and daughters of the King. That doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. That doesn't mean we're not going to groan through travail and trial. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then that brings us into Pastor Gary's text from last week. I'm so thankful for the sermon archive site because sitting in New Hampshire, I was able to be encouraged and listen to Pastor Gary's word from last week. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good those who are called according to his purpose. And, and so what sets up our passage today is God's providential care over all things for the good of his children. God's providential care. And that's really where this goes further. Last week, Pastor Gary made the point, as it's in the text, all things. I mean, you mean all things? Yes, all things. Jesus will talk about not a single sparrow falling to the ground. The book of Proverbs says, the lot is cast in the lap Every decision is from the Lord. God is working every roll of the dice in Las Vegas according to his will. Every bird in the forest that drops, every hair on your head numbered, purposed according to God's will who's working all things together for the good of those who love him. It doesn't say for the happy or for the health and prosperity, but it says the good. And this week we're to look at what that good is. What is God's good purpose? What is his goal? What is the destination, the end game, 
that all these things that God is working together is headed towards. And that's where he links in with that notion of the called, um, which, by the way, he renames. If those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called. If you love God today, it's because you're called. And if you're called, you're, you're going to love God. It's two ways of saying the same thing. And that links us now into what theologians sometimes call the golden chain. The golden chain. And, and the reason why it's referred to that is the same group, I might look at these words here, the those and the he also. The same group that he foreknows is the exact same group that moves on to being predestined. And then if we skip over, we'll come back to that purpose statement of in order that he might be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among enemy brethren. We move on, and those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The reason you can think of this as a chain is that there's no possibility that the people in the first group aren't going to make it to the next position in the chain. And then the next group are going to make it to the next position in the chain. Or another way to say it is everyone who enters at the beginning, whoever the foreknown are, whoever that group is, they are also the predestined, the called, the justified, and the glorified. Plus or minus nothing. Plus or minus nothing. And, and if you are a lover of Jesus Christ today, this is you. This is me. And, and Paul is laying this out to encourage us. So I know that there's language here of predestination, of foreknowledge, and we're going to deal with that a little bit. But we're not going to dive in super deep, primarily because that's not Paul's point here. He sort of assumes it. He'll deal with questions and objections in chapter 9, which is where I expect we will spend our time really digging through this issue. So if, you, if this is an issue of predestination, of sovereignty that you struggle with, be patient. We'll deal with it a little bit now, but far more in the weeks to come as we get into Romans 9. Um, so just, just a uh, disclaimer there. So let's take a look at this chain. We're going to look at the chain. We're going to skip over the end of verse 29. And then we're going to come back and look at that. Because that's the ultimate goal. That's the purpose. So let's start with those he foreknew. He foreknew us. Now this is, of course, the, the tricky term that those who have difficulty with the teaching that God is sovereign, that God rules over all, that God would choose his, his, his elect. Um, oftentimes we'll try to understand this as God foreknowing is simply God looking down the corridor of time and seeing who it is who will choose him. Um, and, and that's a common understanding, but I, I think it really misses Paul's point and it really guts it of its power. Most, most difficult with that understanding is it has God learn something. Has God respond to something? We've just heard God is working all things together according to his will for the good of those who love him. So how is he responding to that? How is he learning about that? No, no. The, the idea here of knowing, foreknowing, is, is the idea of a relationship. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. This is, this is such a wonderful truth that God foreknew us. It speaks of a, of a warmth and a love and a relationship. And I think we'll see this clearly in the Old Testament um, in, in Jeremiah chapter 1 as God, speaking to the prophet, talks of his call to him. And, and we'll read verse 4 and verse 5. 
Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, what God is saying is not, before you were born, I was aware that you would exist. (laughs) What he's saying is, Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I was in a relationship with you. I was loving you. I was thinking about you. I was, had plans for you. Do you see how wonderful and powerful this truth is that for everyone here who, who knows the Lord, before you were born, before time began, you were on God's mind. He was loving you. He was planning things for you. He was choosing you. He was kind in his disposition towards you. This should make our mouths drop open in wonder. Turn back a little further to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We all know that God chose Israel as as a nation out of all the other nations. And as Moses tries to explain to Israel this wonderful choice of God to set his love in a peculiar way on them, he gives this astounding reason for why God did it. Love this. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. So why did God choose Israel then? If it wasn't their greatness, if it wasn't their potential, but it was because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose Israel? Why did God love Israel? Because he did. Isn't that wonderful? It's not because you are great or mighty. It's not because God saw what you could do. It's because he loves you. Why does God love you? Because he loves me. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Because he does. It's it's wonderful. It's amazing that God chose to set his love on us. This is why we can boast no more. It's, It's not that God looked down the quarter of time and picked the smartest, best people who are gonna figure it out. We're going to put two and two together a little faster than everyone else. If that were the case, then we are the smart people. We're the holy people. We're the righteous people. And we have a reason to boast over all those who don't get it, who don't figure it out. Rather, we should just drop our jaw in in wonder at God's free love that he pours out on us without any reason in and of ourselves. It's this concept of knowing. It's the same language used of Adam knowing his wife and she bore a son in in Genesis 4.1. It's intimate knowledge. It's relational knowledge. And, And if you are here in Jesus Christ today, God intimately knew you and loved you and set his covenant love on you before the foundation of the world. You are loved. And this should be an encouragement to people in trial. If you're going through a hard time, if you're going through sickness or, or financial problem or whatever, don't for an instant think that that means God's love is any less towards you. You were foreknown. You were foreloved. Let's move on to the next link of the chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined us. And again, this, this becomes difficult 
for us because we want to be the self-made men with the notion that we are predestined. But the predestined simply means to determine beforehand where things are going, the destination beforehand, to predestinate. That's ultimately what this whole passage is about. If foreknowledge speaks of God loving you, predestination speaks of God determining where things are going, determining to bring you to glory, determining to make you like his son. Forno speaks of the loving relationship. Predestination speaks of the goal, the telos, the plan for your life that God has. Turn to uh, Isaiah 46. This is a challenging concept of predestination. It challenges us because we like to be the captain of our ship, the ruler of our fate. And yet the very thing that sets God out as God, apart from all the other would-be gods, is this characteristic. In Isaiah 46, God has just mocked and ridiculed the idols of the nations how people cry out to them and they cannot save, they have no power. And then in stark contrast, in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, he declares what sets him apart from all these would-be gods and would-be saviors. Remember this and stand firm, or call it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. What sets God apart from all the other gods? That from the very beginning, he declared the end And that all, not some, not most, but all of his plan will be accomplished. All of his good pleasure will be done. He has said it from the beginning, and he will bring it to pass. This is predestination. God, from the beginning, is saying where it's all going to end up, where it will terminate, what its destination will be, and he says it will all be according to his good pleasure. And that's what makes him God against all the other would-be gods. That's what makes him God. And we can rest in this because it means that we can't screw up our salvation. If you delight in the truth that Jesus will never let anyone slip out of his hand, or as some people say, once saved, always saved, or once believing, always believing, or eternal security, or whatever term you want to put on that, it hinges on God's ability to get his plans done to get his people to their destination. Without, without predestination, without God determining, I will get Greg Rolak to glory. That will be where he ends up. Then there is no security. And, and so this can be an affront to our humanity or something we can delight and rejoice in. He foreknew us, he predestined us. Next we read, he called us. And this is, this is where we enter into time and space. Before the foundation of the world, you were known. Before the foundation of the world, your end was sure. But sometime 
maybe last year or for me 10 years ago maybe for some today God called you and he doesn't call any one of us the same way Paul's experience on the road to Damascus was I'm sure significantly different than most people's in this room Um, some of us he calls through trial some of us hear the gospel once and, and the lights turn on others of us have heard it hundreds of times some of us grew up in Christian homes some of us not so Christian homes and yet God called us and he used means and he used people spaced precisely there and when I go through my own conversion testimony it's amazing the things God lined up and the people he put in the right place to bring me to him and, and this again is an ex- this is an uh, exhibition of God's love for you he has a plan for each and every one of you. He's calling it. Maybe today he's calling someone here right now. Maybe God's calling even now, drawing, bringing his sheep in. Jesus says in John 10, 11, I have other sheep not of this fold and I must get them in. It is my Father's pleasure that none that he has given me will be lost. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, is out seeking and saving the lost. And God is doing that through him. And and he loves you, and he's got a goal for your life, and he's calling, and he's drawing. And and I just want to stop here. If if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, perhaps God would call you even right now to, to, to repent and to trust in faith and his work on the cross. And what a wonderful thing it would be for God, even here and now, to call more of his sheep to him. Our God has not left our salvation for us to figure out. He is superintending every step of the way. This, is, this whole chain, when we heard that God is working together all things for good, this are some of the things that are working together. So as we go through trial, as our bodies groan, as the world groans, as the spirit within us groans, take comfort that the, the captain of our ship will get us to the port safely even though there's a storm around us, we can rest with security. He called us and he justified us. Of course, if you've been in this series on Romans, you know that that speaks to God's legal declaration of innocence. The whole book up to now has been trying to explain how can a righteous, good, holy judge look at a thoroughly guilty people and say not guilty and still be a righteous judge? That's not a problem we think about often in our culture. We so emphasize the love of God. We so emphasize his forgiveness, his tolerance. We forget about his holiness. If any judge today were to look at guilty people and say, you're innocent, we'd throw him off the chair. He'd be out of a job. And yet the king of the universe, judge of all mankind, looks at me and looks at you and all those who have trusted in his son and says, innocent, not guilty. And the gospel is the explanation of how on earth can he do that? Turn back to Romans chapter three. This, this should be review, but this is the heart of the gospel. Let's read verse 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the dilemma of the gospel. Without the cross, God can either be just or justifier, but he can't be both. Without Jesus' death on the cross, God can give you justice and be holy, or he can be kind and forgive you, but stop being just. The gospel and the death of Jesus on the cross is what enables God to both be just and justifier, the righteous judge and the forgiving judge. This is why any other attempt to approach God insults his grace. Jesus died on that cross so that you could be forgiven, so that justice could be poured out on him instead of you. And this is the basis of our forgiveness, not because we try our best, not because we're good people, not because we go to church, but because we are trusting in the one who bore our sins on that tree for us. We are trusting in the one who paid our debt in full. He called us, he justified us. The whole book is, is unpacking what that means. It's such a wondrous truth. Such a wondrous truth. And then we get to the final link in the chain. He glorified us. I want you to notice this is past tense. It makes sense that in eternity past, God foreknew. Of course that speaks to the past. And it makes sense that God predestined past tense. And for most of us here, he called us in the past. Maybe he's calling some today. And he justified us, but glorified us? Past tense? This has led some commentators to declare this to be the most daring statement in the Bible. He has glorified us. What you've got to understand, and what is supposed to encourage us, what is supposed to help us persevere in trial is with the same certainty that you know that you are saved, with the same certainty that you know that you are loved, God has declared just as certainly that he has finished the job, that in his mind's eye, you are glorified. It, it's a done deal. There's no possibility that it will not be accomplished. It's just as certain as your calling, as your justification, as your foreknowing, is your glorification. There's no way you're going to miss it. That's going to fail to arrive. You, you can be certain of this. This is the hope of which he speaks earlier in chapter 8 at the end of um, verse 24. Now in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the hope being glorified. And, and what does it mean to be glorified? Well, that's really unpacked at the end of verse 29, God's ultimate purpose. So we've seen that the golden chain of, of security is the promise that from start to finish, God will bring about his purpose. From start to finish, he superintends our salvation. Before you were born, he knew you, he loved you, he had a plan for you. And not only did he have a plan, he called you and he justified you and he's gonna get you there. But where are we going What's the, what's the goal of this plan? What is God's invincible goal? We'll look at it in three parts. To conform us 
to the image of his son. Now that's an amazing, amazing thing. God's plan for you, you want to know God's will for your life, you want to know God's ultimate purpose for you, is to make you like his son. Now it, be careful to note, it says the image of Christ. He's not going to conform us to, we're not going to be little Jesuses running around. But we will be a people, a holy possession of God, who are conformed to the image of Jesus, to his pattern. Um, at least in two ways, we'll be made like Jesus. First, bodily. Philippians 3, 21 and reads, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our bodies will be transformed, and just as Jesus, when he rose that third day, had an incorruptible resurrected, glorified human body, so we await that. Earlier in the passage, Paul says that will complete our adoption as sons. These bodies that ache and groan and get old and sick and die will be renewed, transformed, incorruptible, unperishable. Um, It's a great hope. Our spirits in us are alive. Our bodies are decaying. There's coming a day in the future when our regenerated spirit will be united with a resurrected body and we will be like the Lord. Not, not little gods, but like him and that he is a resurrected man. We will be resurrected people. We'll also be like him spiritually. Not, again, in power, but in purity, in holiness, in moral perfection. Hebrews 2, 9 to 11 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers we're going to be made pure and holy we're going to be sanctified but notice in Hebrews and notice here that the primary means of that is suffering this is, this is the hard part go back up to verse 17 and if children then heirs heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. One of the commentaries I was reading said this, from these passages we learn that fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the prelude to sharing with him in glory. God sent his son in our likeness that we might eventually be like him. We're following the pattern left by Jesus. How did Jesus attain glorification? Through suffering, through learning obedience. How does Paul say we are going to attain, how is God going to bring us to glorification? Well, through sanctification, through suffering that will make us in this life more like Jesus. And if you think about it, almost all of my growth has occurred through times of trial, times of difficulty. Very rarely are things just going wonderfully well and I just get sanctified. 
I've never heard someone's testimony about how they grew in Christ, you know. Things were hard for a while there, and then they planed off, and I got healthy, and I got wealthy, and before you knew it, I was holy. No, when, when you talk to people, when you think of the times where you grew, it's those times where you were forced to cling to Christ, when you were forced to cling to the cross, when you knew that if grace did not uphold you, you would collapse. And, and so Paul is reminding us that this is how we become conformed to Christ's image. The fire burns off the dross, it purifies. So he's telling these heirs of God, these joint heirs with Christ, not to be surprised that God, their father, would allow difficulty in their lives. We must not think that because my father's a king, therefore I should be riding in a limousine. Our Lord and Savior was mistreated. Our Lord and Savior humbled himself. Our Lord and Savior didn't drive around, you know, with a, in a chariot. Foxes have holes in the ground, birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head, Jesus says. And, and we should not, we don't deserve any better. We're not promised any better. And if we have any better, it's God's grace in our lives. Um, he wants to conform us to the image of his Son. That's God's goal. Is, is that our great desire? Why do you want to go to heaven? Because in heaven we can see lost loved ones. That's a, that's a good reason. It's not the best reason, it's a good reason. Because in heaven there'll be beauty and splendor and we'll be in bodies that won't get old. We can eat food and not gain weight. We can, all those reasons, that's good. But ultimately, I hope the best reason is because in heaven we're to see Jesus and we're to be like Jesus. Beholding glory, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another, conformed to his image. That is God's goal and purpose for each and every one of us. He loves us, but he loves us and won't leave us as we are precisely because he loves us. He wants to, and he's starting now. He's starting now. To conform us to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn now, we generally don't deal with the notion of firstborn like they did back in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, the firstborn was the preeminent one, the one with the double share of the inheritance. Turn, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll see this clearly. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and through 18. So God's purpose for us is to conform us to the image of his son, but even that isn't his ultimate goal. That is a means to an end. The end being that his son be glorified, his son be seen as first. Colossians 1, 15 to 18. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. See, here we learn that the story of salvation, the story of history, as much as we are featured prominently in it, is not ultimately about us. It's about the firstborn. 
It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the Father's delight and intention to glorify his Son for all to see. Oh, it's about us, but not ultimately about us. It's about a Father who loves his Son and has determined before time to glorify him, to lift him up, to give him a gift of a redeemed humanity conformed to his image, reflecting his glory for the universe to see. The story's about God. We, we get to play, amazingly, a role in this story. We get loved, we get transformed, we get chosen, but, but never think that we are the center stage. Never think the universe is revolving around us. The center of this story is a great God and Father who is determined to exalt his Son and glorify his Son above all things. And we serve that end by bearing his image, by being conformed to his image. He is the firstborn. And that's why in Revelation 4, 10, and 11, when we see a picture in heaven of all these crowns and all these rewards that the saints receive, these 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And what do they do with their glory? What do they do with their rewards? What do they do with their, with their honor? They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. He created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Whatever glory, whatever honor we receive, we are going to throw at the feet of our God and Savior. It's not about us ultimately. It's wonderful that we have to play such a part, but it's not about us. It's about God. This is His story. History is His story. It's not my story. Um, it's about God. And then this final point, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And this lets us know what a big role we play. No, the story is not ultimately about us. But as Jesus Christ becomes preeminent and takes center stage in the universe, with all eyes turning to him, we, we stand beside him as brothers, conformed to his image. This is why in the book of Revelation, Jesus promises the faithful churches that they will rule with him. He's been given all dominion and authority and rule, and he shares it with us. He has inherited the universe, and then we become joint heirs with him. That this one to whom all creation will turn and look and wonder in awe, we, we get to call him brother. No, the story is not about us, but we are on the stage with him. He's center stage with all the spotlights on him, but we're there with him. When he comes to reclaim the world in Revelation, who does he come with? The host of his saints coming in judgment with him. In the new heavens, the new earth, and the kingdom when he rules, we'll be ruling with him. We get this tremendous privilege. We get to be conformed to his image. We get to be sinless and holy as he is. And then we get to call him brother and we get to share in his authority. We get to share in his inheritance. And this is why Paul can say back in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It starts to make a little bit more sense now with what awaits us, what is just around the corner for us and the certainty with which we can bank on it. Which just leaves us with 
One last question. How should we respond to this type of wondrous truth? If this is the certainty of our inheritance, if this is the certainty of our future, if this is the love which God has for us and the glory that awaits us, how should we respond? First, be secure in Christ. Paul wants his readers to be secure in Christ. If you're in Christ, Jesus says in John 10, no one's going to slip out of his hands. If you're in his hands, you're not going anywhere. You're secure. You're safe. No one can snatch you out of his hands. If you're resting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, nothing ultimately can touch you. This, this is actually next week where Paul goes with this. So I won't spend too much time here lest I rob Pastor Gary of his text. But just look at the next verse. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that spare his own son that gave him up for us. How will he not also graciously give us all things? And jump a little further. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? He says, no, nothing can alter God's plan. Nothing can foil it. Nothing can get in the way. He will glorify his sons and daughters. He will bring them to glory. He will conform them to the image of his son. You can rest in that security. Second, be humbled by God's grace. After we read all that God has done for us, you know, how, how dare we take credit for our salvation? How dare we pat ourselves on the back? Or the flip side of that, look down on others as though we're Christians today because we're the good people, we're the smart people, we're the better people, and not because, why did God love us? Because he loved us. Be humbled. Give God the glory. See, be patient and hopeful in trial. That's ultimately the reason this sits in chapter 8 as it does. The world's groaning, we're groaning, the Spirit's groaning. Be patient, be hopeful. Hope for the glory to be revealed. Look to the things that are not seen instead of the things that are seen. Be patient, trust God. He lovingly is measuring out every day's trials, every day's grace. And his mercies are new every day. Finally, if this is God's plan for every one of us, if God's purpose and plan is that we be like Jesus, be conformed to the image of Christ. Don't wait for it all to happen when you die. This is God's purpose in choosing you. This is God's purpose in loving you. This is God's purpose in calling you, is to make you like Jesus. I hope you're excited about this purpose. I hope this is something you're passionate about. I hope this is something you're pursuing. Because the end game, the ultimate reason that God provided the salvation for you was so that you could be conformed to the image of his son for your great joy and his son's great glory. I hope this is something you're passionate in pursuing. What's God's will for my life? God's will for my life is I'd be more like Jesus. God's will for your life is you'd be more like Jesus. Such riches, such glory, such wondrous things that Paul elsewhere says can't even really be named or spoken about await us. That we should take great hope in God's invincible purpose. Invincible purpose in bringing his sons and daughters to glory. I'm gonna call the worship team up. We have one final song to sing. 
Um, it's, it's a newer one, completely done, and it talks about the truth that this salvation that God is bringing to us, what he starts, he will finish. So please stand.